Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here today. I want to welcome all the campuses. Hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving. We had a great Thanksgiving. Lots of family. Hung out with family. Lots of food. Lots of pumpkin pie. Who likes pumpkin pie? Come on. There we go. Amen. I love it. Giving praise for a pumpkin pie. And then football. Buckeye fans. Me included. We do have prayer after the services, though, so you know. I literally considered changing my message to, to the book of Lamentations. As a Buckeye fan myself, but here's the deal. Christmas is coming, right, church? Amen. And we're glad to worship here today and celebrate what God is doing. It's interesting. In our American culture, we are transitioning. We are kind of at a pivot point. We're like at this pivot point between Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Where we go from being thankful for to I want more. And so I, I think it's important that we learn what it means to be content. We have to have hearts of contentment, of peace and joy as we go into this season. You know, we went on Black Friday, my wife and I went shopping at the Dayton Mall. We braved the Dayton Mall to go shopping. And it's interesting because I was completely satisfied with what I had until I went to the mall. And there I discovered, looking at phones, gosh, my, my phone could be upgraded. I'm not satisfied with the iPhone 14. Look, look what they have. Or maybe when it comes to furniture, we're looking at furniture. And I realized that my satisfaction when I started looking at more was a situation where maybe I wasn't content with what I had. And that's our culture, isn't it? You see, I believe we live in a culture or land of Ur, and not where Abraham lived, for all you Bible students, but the land of Ur, of better, bigger, faster. And we kind of buy into this lie, which we have to be careful about. The, the lie is this. That the more we get, the happier we'll be. And we're going to see that that's not the case. That contentment doesn't lie in things. Contentment lies in Jesus Christ. Contentment lies in not the things that we get, but the things that matter, like our family and our friends, our relationships with the Lord. That's what matters. But as we go into this season, may we have that heart of contentment so we can truly celebrate the one who allows us to celebrate the, the, the gift giver that gives us the gifts that we love. And so we go from being grateful, the beautiful time around the Thanksgiving table, which hopefully you had, to what? Cartful, right? Where we start grabbing stuff, accumulating things. And, and here's what we have to be careful about. If we're not careful, a season of joy can quickly become a season of discontent. And God doesn't want that because that is a, a place where we're gonna start to wander in our faith. But here's what Paul says. The Apostle Paul, he says, I've learned the secret of being content. Paul figured it out. And, and real quick, at all the campuses, raise your hand if you would like to be content. Go ahead, raise your hand. Who wants to be content? Pretty much everyone in this room. We should be raising our hands. Everyone on this planet wants to be content, whether you have faith or not. Here's the key. What is the object? What is the source of your contentment? That's going to determine finding out the secret of being content. But first we have to look at discontent. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 16 as we see a picture of discontent with the Israelites. So we learn from the Israelites before we learn the pathway of contentment. If you have a Bible, please turn or grab a Bible or device. It's important. As we get into God's word, I've found that as you read the Bible, 
Specifically, the Holy Spirit's going to teach you individually as we go through this passage. So read along with me. Exodus 16, second book in the Bible. And here's what's going on. You know the story. It's the Israelites. They've been in captivity for 400 years in Egypt. Some of you maybe saw the Ten Commandments this past weekend with Charlton Heston. I love that movie. He plays a great Moses. What does he say? He says, let my people go. And finally, Pharaoh doesn't do it, but God does it. Ten plagues later, the people go. The Red Sea is parted. They go through the Red Sea. He puts the Red Sea back on the Egyptian army, and God frees the people miraculously. It's an amazing act of God. Pillar by fire at night, pillar of cloud during the day. God is providing for his people all these amazing miracles. And here we have the context. We're reading in Exodus 16. They have been in the desert, in the wilderness, for a month and a half. There's almost two million Israelites. But we're going to see how quickly you go from being content to discontent. Verse 1, it says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of sin. Usually good things don't happen in the desert of sin, right? And we're going to see what happens, which is between Elam and Sinai. Sinai is where they eventually went, where they got the Ten Commandments. Moses came down the mountain. So they're on this camping trip, right? And God's destination is to get them to the promised land. And it says, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. So it's been a month and a half. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only, underline that word, those two words, if only. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, notice they're pointing the finger. But you, Moses and God, have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. How quickly we go from praising God to complaining to God, right? How quickly they go, short memories. They were just freed from captivity, 400 years. God answered their prayers. And here they, here they are. Just before this, the chapter, God gave them water from a rock, literally. And now they're like, if only. And their hearts of complaining are occurring but here's what I love about God. God is good and God is kind. And even amidst the complaints, here's what he does. Verse four, it says, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. God is literally going to give them bread from heaven. He's going to give them manna, we're going to see. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. It's interesting through life how God gives us specific tests when it comes to our contentment. He's testing our faith of making sure we understand the difference between what we want and what we need. And he's testing the Israelites. And he says, on the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in. And that has to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Basically, the Sabbath. God wants them on the sixth day to gather twice as much. So on the seventh day, they don't have to work. It's the Sabbath. They can enjoy food and just relax. And so here we have, what is God doing? He's giving them manna. What is manna? Manna is bread from heaven, literally. Uh, it describes it in verse 31 as these honey cakes, like frosted flakes, right? First frosted flakes in history. But, but God has given them every morning th this meal. As the dew sets in, for us it would be literally frost in the morning. But as the dew sets in, it's on the ground waiting for them. Imagine going to your kitchen every morning and there's some cinnamon rolls waiting for you. 
Doesn't that sound amazing? They weren't as tasty as cinnamon rolls, but at the same time, God provided. And so, not only did he provide breakfast, we're going to see, but also dinner. Go down to verse 11. It said, the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I'm the Lord, your God. His provisions show his love for them. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost, frosted flakes, right? Um, fell on the ground and appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Literally, the name manna means what is it? They named it, was it, what is it? Very original, but that's the Hebrew term. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. An omer was a form of measurement similar to a cup. We measure flour by a cup. They measured their manna by omer. This was equivalent to about eight cups of manna for each person. Here's what's interesting. I thought about this. You know, we, we celebrate Thanksgiving as the first Thanksgiving when the pilgrims came over. To me, this is the first Thanksgiving. And instead of turkey and dressing, it was quail and manna, right? And God is providing. And here's what it says. He says in verse 18, everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. You see, contentment is God allowing us to know what we need, not what we want. And he was giving them manna and quail. And for 40 years, the Bible says he gives them manna. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Old Testament, manna helped them physically. Every day, we're going to see for 40 years, God gave them manna physically to eat. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the bread of what? The bread of life. He is our spiritual manna. God wants every day for us to gather fresh manna, the word of God, you see, to be content means we're connected to Christ. That's why Jesus said to pray the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily what? Our daily bread. Jesus talks about how important that is for the word of God. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. And so here, here's the key. God was teaching them physically to depend on him. Church, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, we have to depend on Christ. And that means connecting with him daily. And he wants us to gather. He wants us to be filled with his manna, with the word of God daily. And here's the thing. There's a lot of counterfeits to that. And not just that. I think it's important that we gather and we worship like we're doing this morning. We gather corporately. We hear from pastors. There's nothing wrong with listening to podcasts and reading books about the Lord. But let me tell you, this is your chief source of manna right here. God wants to provide for you specifically and individually through the Holy Spirit, your counselor, to teach and train and guide and build you up. There's nothing that can replace that. Enjoy your fresh manna. And sometimes we'll have manna from other people, which is great, but he wants you to have your own manna as well. Amen? Amen. And so that's what he was doing. God was providing daily. Now, now here's what's interesting. Go to verse 35. It says, the, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. So wait a minute. They've been in the desert a month and a half. Why did it take them 40 years to get to the promised land? 
This was not a 40-year journey. Actually, from the place they were going to Mount Sinai, it would only take them 11 days to get to the promised land, which was Canaan. An 11-day journey took 40 years. Why? Because of discontentment. And, And here's the thing. God does not want us to wander in the wilderness in our faith. And discontentment can cause us to wander. A lack of obedience, a lack of faith can cause us to wander in our lives. And we never reach our promised land. Do you want to experience the promised land God has for you? We all do. And here's the thing. The promised land for us is not a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the abundant life that Jesus talks about. He says, I want to give you life and life more abundantly. The promised land is not a destination. It's the journey, church. The promised land can be found today in this moment by surrendering and yielding to the presence of God in our lives. But here's what happens. We wander. We we go on detours, don't we? We fall into sin. And we never have those promises fulfilled because we're discontent. You see, here's what we learn. An 11-day journey took 40 years. The Bible says that anyone aged 20 and over, all the 2 million Israelites died in the wilderness. Everyone 20 years and under lived. Caleb and Joshua made it to the promised land. Moses didn't make it to the promised land. Took 40 years. Why? Because discontentment keeps us from experiencing God's promises in our lives. God wants us to experience his peace and his joy, but it can't happen with discontentment. So what robs us of, of contentment? What are the three things we learn in this passage that, we, that robs us of contentment in our lives? Number one, complaining. Complaining, right? What do we see here? The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Do you notice sometimes how complaining is contagious, right? Isn't it contagious? It just spread like wildfire through the camp. You see, gossip is just an audience for complaining, is it not? And we have to be careful because as we complain, then it, it's contagious. And whether it's in a church or an organization or in a family, it's contagious. What else do we learn about complaining? That it comes naturally, right? Did you have to teach your kids to complain? I didn't. I didn't have to sit down with our boys and say, okay, here's how you complain about not brushing your teeth at night. Here's how you complain about not picking up your clothes off the floor, right? Here's how, no, it comes naturally, but contentment must be learned. Complaining is just part of our sinful nature, whether you're a child or an adult. That's why the second verse we had our our boys learn, besides John 3.16, was Philippians 2.14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. It's important. But, But here's the question. But what about if we truly have an issue with someone? Does that mean we don't even address it? No. The Bible says address any issue or conflict or complaint you have with someone. God loved the fact that it says he heard the complaints of the Israelites. Jesus gives us a model. Jesus gives us a process. In Matthew 18, check out Matthew 18 later. And that process is when you have conflict or an issue with someone, what does he say? He says, go to that person individually. Don't talk about that person. Go to them and address it physically with them and and, and just be able to resolve it. And, And there's processes God gives us. And here's the question. Do I complain in order to strike out from anger or frustration or because I'm trying to improve a situation? You see, sometimes there's critical feedback and sometimes it's just criticizing. But God wants us to have hearts 
They're not complaining. You see, Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. If we have a grateful heart, the complaining is less. Amen? What else? Comparing. What robs us of contentment? Complaining and comparing. We compare ourselves to other situations, other circumstances, and other people. Look at the Israelites. What do they say? In Egypt, they're looking back at Egypt, not looking ahead to the promised land, but they're, they're saying, in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Moses, it was better in Egypt. And obviously it wasn't. They were slaves. But this is what happens to us as well. When we compare ourselves to others, and, and we see that in social media all the time. Not that social media is bad. There's great things for social media. But at the same time, we have to be careful because it creates this comparing culture. You see, we see the highlight reels of people's lives, but the bloopers in our own, right? And then once we compare, we get discouraged. And God says, stop comparing. Look to me, the author and finisher of your faith. You see, they said, if only. And I feel like we've got to be careful for the if onlys in our life. If only I had more money, if only I had a better job, if only I had a different career, if only I had a different spouse, if only the Buckeyes would have won, right? See, God doesn't want us to live in the if onlys. He wants us to live in the Christ is enough because the if onlys will keep us in the wilderness. Jesus wants us to look ahead. And I think one of the biggest enemies of discontentment is unmet expectations, unfulfilled dreams. And you may have had something happen in your life and you're like, man, if only I would have made that different decision or that different choice. And God says, don't look back. Looking back will paralyze you from walking to the future. It'll paralyze you from finding the promised land. What does Paul say? He says, forgetting those things behind, I strive to those things ahead. I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, press on, because when you focus on your calling, there's going to be contentment. It's not your career, it's your calling that matters too. What else? Lastly, the other enemy of contentment, what robs us, is coveting. It's a big one. Coveting to me is the, the great thief of joy. So we're always looking for something else, right? God had to come up with a commandment for it, the 10th the of the 10 commandments. He says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. He's very specific your neighbor's wife, his ox or donkey, that could be a BMW in our day and age, right? A new car or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But we all covet, don't we? When I drive home every day, I covet my, my neighbor's lawn. He, is, he has a fantastic lawn. I mean, it looks like a green on the master's golf course. I mean, it's beautiful. And his lawnmower. He's got this amazing lawnmower, this riding lawnmower. I've got this old little push mower. But guess what? I have three boys. So that's the good news, right? <laughs> so he may covet that a little bit as well. But here's the thing. We all covet. It happens. It's natural. The key is, what do we do when that coveting happens? Because God wants to make sure that our hearts are right, because it'll steal our joy. You know, coveting was the first sin in the Bible. Remember Eve? when she was tempted by the serpent? And what did the serpent say to her? Eve, why, why can't you eat from that other tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Eve, God's holding out on you. Eve, you deserve better. Eve, he didn't really say that. And that heart of covening of envy got into Eve's heart and she bit into the fruit. And then Adam bit into the fruit. And do you think when they bit into the fruit, they were satisfied? 
No. They discovered sin. They discovered they were no longer naked anymore. God had to cover them. And here's the thing. Their satisfaction was a counterfeit. They thought by having this new and improved life and finding this tree would bring happiness, and it didn't. You see, Eve had the perfect life. She had the perfect husband before he sinned, the perfect home, but she chose anyway, imperfection. And see, the same thing happens to us, and we have to be careful, because the lie started from the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, and it's still with us today. And the lie is this, that the more we get, the happier we'll be. And happiness doesn't produce contentment. Happiness is not built on money. It's built on the things that are important in our life, the relationships, the people. It's interesting. There was a study done, a worldwide study on depression. Over 100,000 people were interviewed in 20 countries. And they were trying to figure out which country is the most depressed. Where where is this connection? And the researchers were very surprised because they found out that the most prosperous countries the most wealthiest were the most depressed. And they found out that the more the wealth goes up in a nation, the more happiness goes down. 19%, United States was number two. 19% of people in the United States go to the doctor for some form of help with depression. And that needs to be assisted, that needs to be helped. But the key is, is it's not about what we get, it's who we know, right church? That's where the satisfaction, that's where the contentment is going to come. Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he's right. It's in the people we love. I remember we used to live out in California. I grew up in Ohio, love Ohio. Then we moved out eventually back to Ohio. And I got a job. I was in ministry out in California in Akron, Ohio. And we didn't have anything. It's expensive to live out in Southern California and so we moved out. We had a newborn, a three-month-old, and two young boys under four. And we had nowhere to go. And this, this dear couple invited us to live in their basement from our church until we could raise enough money to get a home. And so for nine months, we lived in this basement. And let me tell you, we were the happiest family, but we didn't have anything. We had a baby crying all the time in one room. We had one bathroom. My wife had some health issues. And I remember those times of just how content Because it wasn't what we had, it's who was with us. And God wants us to know it's not about having a big house that makes a home, right? It's the people involved. It's the love you have. And God wants to make sure that we're focused on the right things, the things that matter. And coveting can take us off the things that truly matter. So what does Paul say? Let's learn the pathway to contentment. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. And we will learn what it means to be contented, how we can cultivate contentment. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. And Paul is writing this in in a prison cell in Rome. And so what's going on in the context, basically the church in Philippi, which he started, sent a member all the way to Rome, which was about 800 miles from Philippi, with a gift. They gave it to Paul. And Paul's like, thank you for the gift. It's going to see someone in prison. But he's telling them, he's like, hey, thank you for the gift, but I'm good. I don't need any more gifts. So he writes this letter. At the end of the letter to the church in Philippi, he's explaining the secret of being content. He's telling them and encouraging the church, here's why I don't need any money to be happy. He says in verse 11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. 
I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. And here's the famous verse. I can do all things through Christ, who what? Gives me strength. You see, I think it's interesting because this verse, a lot of us know this verse, right? It's a famous verse. We quote it all the time. It's on soccer jerseys or for athletes or if you're going to run a marathon. And it's a great verse. I prayed this over our boys for sports and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's true. But it's interesting because here in this passage, the context is contentment. It's not to achieve a goal. It's an awareness and assurance of knowing that your contentment doesn't come from anything, but from his relationship to Jesus, Paul is saying. Paul's contentment was not based on what he had, but in who he knew. And here's the definition, at least my definition. Christian contentment, an inward assurance of God's sovereignty and goodness that produces joy and peace in our lives, regardless of the circumstances. You see, inward is the key. No matter what's going on, inwardly, Our contentment, our peace and joy don't depend on our circumstances because you have a wellspring of joy and peace from Christ that doesn't come from you, regardless of the circumstances. So four things Paul talks about in this passage that define how we can be content. Contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. Notice he says, whether I'm well-fed or hungry or living in plenty or in want, See, Paul is saying, whether I'm in this Roman prison or at home in Jerusalem, I'm content. Whether I'm in good health or struggling, I'm content. There's a dear lady at our campus. Her name's Sarah. Sarah's in her late 70s. And Sarah's a godly woman. She loves the Lord. She's served in the church for many, many years. She's facilitated Bible studies. She's been a Stephen minister. She's a servant of Christ. And so five years ago, Sarah found out she had cancer very difficult. Five years, she's been battling cancer. And even through it, she's led Bible studies. Even through it, Sarah's joy and peace have been prominent in spite of the valley she's walking through. And the other day, she gave me a call and she said, Jared, could you come pick me up? She's too weak to drive. Could you come pick me up? I want to explain some details about my funeral. She's planning for her homecoming with the Lord. And so I drove over and picked her up. And she said, we're going to go to the cemetery. I've never had someone ask me to drive them to the cemetery to show them their future gravestone. This is, this is the kind of hope and the kind of faith that Sarah has. So we drove to the cemetery. And as we drove up, there was her gravestone. With her kids' plots as well in this beautiful tree. And she smiled and she said, could you go look at the other side of the gravestone? And I walked around and there's this verse in large font, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And Sarah said, don't you love that verse? I said, Sarah, that verse embodies you. And I thought it was amazing. I said, Sarah, I really admire you. I admire your faith. The fact that you know your homecoming is near. But you know, the Bible says it's not goodbye. It's until we meet again. Amen? And Sarah has the faith and the peace, the contentment of knowing that her peace and her joy don't depend on her circumstances. And before this, Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You see, Paul doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your cancer, rejoice 
and your issues and struggles, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord and Christ will be your shepherd in the circumstances. That's the contentment Sarah has that I've been encouraged with, that I admire. You see, David knew that contentment as well. And he wrote many Psalms. See, being content doesn't mean we don't lament. It doesn't mean we don't mourn. It doesn't mean we're not emotional. It doesn't mean we don't go through struggles or talk about and share those struggles. David talked about it in one of the famous Psalms of all time, Psalm 23. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want contentment. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and staff, they come from me. David knew contentment. He knew that God would be with him no matter what. And church, that's true contentment, that God is with you, that we can rejoice in Jesus, not in our circumstances. What else does Paul teach us? Contentment is something we learn and cultivate, something we have to learn. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. It's not a feeling or an emotion, it's a choice. Paul's saying some some situations we don't choose. We don't choose our circumstances, but we can choose contentment. We can control some issues, but we can control contentment and our peace. It's not necessarily a spiritual gift, but a spiritual practice. It's formed through experience. I remember the old commercial back when I was young. I'm going to date myself. Back in the 80s. Remember that old Smith Barney commercial? It says, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it, right? Paul is saying, finding contentment is found the old-fashioned way. You learn it. It's through experience. We want to teach our kids contentment. One tradition we have in the Petty House is every Christmas season, we all go shopping as a family. But what we do at the end of the year, we give our boys, we have three sons, we give them their allowance. And so they get their allowance from the entire year from you know, doing chores and feeding the dog and whatnot. And then we say, now you have to spend your allowance on each other, on your brothers. Let me tell you, they love that, right? And so they said, okay. So what we do is we go to, uh, before Christmas, we all go to the mall or to Walmart. And it's kind of like a reality show, honestly. You know, our boys are competitive. So we're like, okay, here's what we do. And we line up all the carts. There's like five carts. And I've got the timer. And we give them, give them money to shop for their, their brothers. And I say, okay, an hour and a half, you got to be back. Ready, go. And they take off throughout the store. And they shop for their brothers. And they come back and they have to hide the gifts, put them in the minivan. And eventually Christmas morning, underneath the tree, there's all their gifts. Guess which gift they want to see first. The ones that their brother gave them. And here's the cool thing. Is the greatest joy they have as we look at their faces is the joy when they see their brother open the present they gave them. Not their gift. Because the joy is in giving. See, contentment comes when we give. That's why the Bible says it's more blessed to give than what? To receive. And so where can we make sure that contentment is, we're learning it, not just by receiving, but through giving. What else? Contentment comes from strength and satisfaction in Christ. Paul says this. He says his strength and his satisfaction is not from what he is receiving, but from Christ. His sufficiency is Jesus. You see, the Greeks in those days looked at contentment as being self-sufficient. It was mind over matter. It was kind of like that song by Paul Simon. I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock can feel no pain, and an island never cries. I can do it on my own. 
I can do it my own strength. That's the American way as well. And Paul's saying it's not through my strength, it's through Christ's strength. It's Christ's sufficiency, not self-sufficiency. It can't be Jesus plus something equals contentment. It can't be Jesus plus our career equals contentment. It can't be Jesus plus a a bank account equals contentment. It can't even be Jesus plus our, our children equals contentment. Paul is saying it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus alone is contentment. And that's why Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can what? You can do nothing. You see, God wants us to tap into the source of our contentment, the source of our joy, the source of our peace, and that's Christ. I love what John Piper says. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's contentment. Lastly, contentment is commanded and based on a promise. God actually commands contentment. In Hebrews, it says this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. See, it doesn't say keep, keep us free from money. And money isn't the issue. Possessions are not the issue. It's the love of money. It's the love of possessions. It's, it's making it into an idol. It's not having money, but money having us. It's the pursuit of that over other things. That's why Jesus says you can't have two masters. You can't serve the one and hate the other. But he says this, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. There's a promise of contentment. There's a promise that says, I will take care of you. I will be there for you, just like he did for the Israelites. And here's another point that I think is important. Contentment is a witness to the watching world. Our contentment is a witness to others as Christians. And I love the story of Kurt Warner. Because through his struggles and success, he learned contentment. Kurt Warner, they made a movie about him called The Underdog. And he was an NFL quarterback, but he started off with a dream as a kid to play football in the NFL. He went to Northern Iowa as a quarterback, tried out for the Green Bay Packers, and he got cut. Went back home to Sioux City, Iowa. Didn't have any prospects. And he said it was time for me to to help the family. So he, he got a job stocking shelves at a local grocery store. So for three years, he stocked shelves. He still had this goal and ambition, but he never knew if he would make that goal in the NFL. Well, during that time, he said he discovered success is not found on a football field, but how one acts when confronted with disappointment. He said it deepened his faith in Christ. And he gave his life to Christ during those three years. Until finally, he got a call. The St. Louis Rams called him and said, we're looking for a backup quarterback. Would you like to try out? He said, I'd love to. He goes and he, try out, he tries out for the team. Not only makes the team, but becomes the starter on the team. Led the team to a great season, was voted MVP that season, and eventually won the Super Bowl. And at the Super Bowl, a reporter asked him from ABC after the game, as, as they're having the ceremony and celebrating, they said, Kurt, first things first, tell me about the final touchdown pass to Isaac Bruce. And here's what he said. With a smile, he replied, well, first things first, I've got to thank my Lord and Savior up above. And then he shouted, thank you, Jesus. You see, here's a picture. Kurt Warner deflected the praise and the accolades of his skills and gave it to God. And he later said that his contentment, whether he was stocking shelves back in Sioux City, Iowa, or winning the Super Bowl, he found contentment through Christ. 
And that's what Paul tells us, that whether we are living in plenty or in want, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So how do we cultivate this? First of all, practice gratitude. A heart of gratitude really does change our attitude. It gives us contentment. It's being thankful for the small things in life as well, as we just finished Thanksgiving. What else? Let go of comparison. Let go of comparing yourself to others and saying, what do they have or what what are they doing versus just focusing on what God has given you. Also serving others. I love the fact that all over Dayton this coming weekend, we're going to have Christmas stores set up in, in Springboro and Northmont, Centerville, Beaver Creek. Where we can serve our community. We can share the love of Christ as we pass out gifts to show them the true gift of Christmas in the Lord. And so serving others is so important. That brings contentment. That brings joy. And finally, be generous. Be generous. A generous heart allows us to have contentment as we learned it is better to give than to receive. And and the greatest generosity in history, as most of us know, is when Jesus gave his life for us. When he went to the cross, when he paid the price, when he gave us the ultimate gift so that we could have contentment. You see, you can't find contentment if you don't know Jesus. But once you know him, there's a new source of contentment that flows in your life from the forgiveness and the grace and peace that he alone can give. And the question as we leave here today, where do you need to let go of discontentment in your life? Maybe like the Israelites, you feel like you've been wandering in the wilderness. Maybe there's a heart where there's some complaining or coveting and God is saying, I want you to focus on me to discover the abundant life that God has for you. You see, here's the key. Jesus is enough. And as he told us, apart from him, we can do nothing. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are in control. And although we can't control our circumstances, Lord, we can give you control of our lives. And as we give you control of our lives, as we surrender our lives to you, Lord, you bring a peace and a joy that doesn't come from the world, doesn't come from the circumstances. It comes from you, Jesus. And we know that joy, you tell us, you want us to give us joy, it's joy and fall. And we ask you to fill our hearts this morning. Fill our hearts that they would overflow. And the love that you give us that we could receive, we could pour it out into our families, in the workplace, with our neighbors and our friends. And as we go into this Christmas season, that there would be a newfound contentment, a newfound peace that we can't even explain, a peace that surpasses understanding. But Lord, that only you can give. And so God, we thank you. And we thank you, Jesus, that we can find our manna, the word of God, our daily bread with you every single day, that you would sustain us and you would guide us. It's in Jesus' name we all pray. And the church said, Amen.